want to ask that you keep those words that the Holy Spirit inspired the prophet Isaiah to write ringing in your ears as we approach today's sermon text. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will be at the very end of Luke's ninth chapter, and picking it up in verse 51 where we left off last time and we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. Again, Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. Let's pray and we'll read God's Word. Father, here we are again asking for your help. Lord, we thank you for the gift of children and their voices singing. God, we thank you that they can indeed come to you in, in spirit and in truth, worshiping you, that uh, worship isn't a matter of age or intellect, uh, but of faith that you give. We, we love because you first loved us, and we say thank you. Now, Lord, thank you for this passage before us here in Luke 9. We pray, Lord, that the words and the example of Jesus would produce change in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, may we grow up into the image and likeness of our Savior. Guard us now from error. Guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. Let's read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go out to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is... God's very word. Now, there is a line embedded at the beginning of this passage we've just read that you are not going to want to forget. In a way, this line functions as a hinge statement right here in Luke's gospel. So get your pens or your highlighters ready, or if you've got one of those steel trap memories, then just go ahead and make yourself a mental note. But, but here's the line. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, listen now, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, what's awaiting him in Jerusalem? He's been talking about it very recently. Gosh, 
Tough, tough crowd this morning. Uh, I heard the cross over here, uh, and hopefully we'll build a little bit more, uh, I don't know, uh, awareness, awake, whatever, uh, poke you with a pin. If, if the person next to you is sleeping, just give them a little nudge here. Yeah, he's going to Jerusalem, and remi- reminder, we've just read here in Luke's ninth chapter that the cross is waiting for him there. He's going to his death, and he knows it. Now, from here on out... Luke is going to chronicle this single-minded pursuit of this destination. In fact, his journey to Jerusalem runs all the way into chapter 19, Luke 19, with Jesus' excuse me, triumphal entry to the city of David. So if you do some quick math, that's 10 chapters from Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem, here in Luke 9, to the actual arrival in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus still has a lot to do, as we'll be seeing in the coming weeks before his death, but he knows where all this is headed. He's resolved himself to go to the cross. It's just like Isaiah foretold of the suffering servant that we just read about in Isaiah chapter 50. He set his face like a flint. Jesus would not be swayed. He had come to give his life in Jerusalem as a ransom for many. So Luke's just told us, this is your part now, I'm going to ask you a question. Luke's just told us that Jesus is headed where? Very good. Jerusalem. And yet, listen now, the very next thing he tells us is that Jesus sends messengers ahead to make preparation in a Samaritan village. Now, no one's like falling out of their seat. Everyone seems fairly calm. Some of us may even just be asking, okay, what gives? Well, that's because there's been 2,000 years of history between now and then. Everyone then that Luke is writing to would have known that this was a very big deal. Everyone there would have realized that Jews and Samaritans mixed together like oil and water. It's hard for us even to imagine the level of disgust, the level of animosity that these two groups of people felt for one another. You see, the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. They were sellouts. Hundreds of years before this, when God had punished his people by sending them into exile, you remember that, for their persistent sin and covenant-breaking rebellion against his word and his way, there were some people, when, when the Israelites and, and the, uh, the people of Judah were carted away into exile, that stayed behind in the land... Eventually, they mixed with the foreigners who would come to populate this stretch of land in Palestine. What resulted? Well, mixed marriages resulted. Mixed culture resulted. Even mixed religious practices. And over time, the Samaritans developed their own system of worship to Yahweh, the one true God. So instead of Jerusalem and the temple being the center, being the where of their worship, the Samaritans believed the place to worship God was at Mount Gerizim in their own territory. That's why, if you'll remember, in that famous account Jesus has with the woman at the well, who also happens to be a Samaritan, she says to him, hey, 
you know, our people say that Mount Gerizim is the place to worship, but your people, the Jews, say that Jerusalem is the proper place to worship the Lord. Remember Jesus' like epic response? It's worth noting. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews... But the hour is coming, amen, and is now here when true worshiper, uh, excuse me, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, don't miss the point from our immediate passage back to, to what we're reading through today. The, the, the last thing then that a Samaritan is going to get behind is helping a Jew get to Jerusalem. Do you see where this is going? So the Samaritans uh, reject Jesus' messengers. Look at verse 53. Why? It spells it out. Because his face is set to Jerusalem. And what happens next? <laughs> well, James and John say, oh, it's on. It's no wonder that Jesus had given these two brothers the nickname Boanerges, or literally translated the Sons of Thunder. Look at verse 54. What's their proposal when they receive this rejection from the Samaritan town? Their proposal to the Lord? Fire from heaven. Lord, I move that we incinerate these Samaritan degenerates. The other brother seconds the motion. Burn them up with fire from heaven for dishonoring you, Jesus. Now, we chuckle, but this is perhaps not as off the wall as you may think. If you've read your Old Testament, you may remember that both Elijah and Moses, who they had just seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, I might add, called down fire from heaven on their enemies. You know, when wicked king, wicked king Ahaziah sends a commander with like 50 men to go capture the prophet Elijah, what's he do? Well, Elijah calls down fire on the, on the whole lot of them, and they're consumed twice. You can read more about that in 2 Kings 1, but... Elijah called down fire, not, notwithstanding the fire that came down on that altar on that one particular occasion. Then in Korah's infamous rebellion against Moses in the wilderness, God himself calls down fire to consume 250 rebellious leaders. That is, after he opened the ground to swallow up Korah and his whole posse in number 16. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, friends, there is biblical precedent for this sort of thing. When God's messengers are rejected, that is a very serious matter to God. Sometimes those people are judged as with fire. Well, reason James and John, no doubt. Well, one greater than Moses and Elijah is here. 
for crying out loud. These two guys, these two brothers, James and John, had just seen a display of Jesus' resplendent glory from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw how Jesus' glory outshined that of Moses and Elijah. So, should not the punishment of the Messiah's enemies be greater than the punishment of Moses' enemies or Elijah's? Maybe they're not that crazy. Well, what's Jesus have to say about all this? In a word, rebuke. Rebuke. You see, this was not what God had in mind for these Samaritan enemies of His. Which brings us, before we move on here in our passage, to two points of application. Two ways I think that we can kind of pull this truth from 2,000 years ago and apply it to our lives today. One point of application, looking at the Samaritan's response. And another point of practical application for us, looking from the response of James and John. First, we should not reject Jesus... Because he challenges our identity. It's a very common thing to do. Perhaps if you've not done this, you know someone who has. Don't don't reject Jesus because he challenges who you are or who you think you are. Your expectations or your cultural customs or even your lifestyle preferences for that matter. The question is not, does Jesus meet my expectations? Does Jesus affirm my identity? Does Jesus reinforce what I believe about the world? That's not the question. The question is, is He God? Here the Samaritans are all bent out of shape because their identity is wrapped around Mount Gerizim. Their identity is wrapped up in their own cultural customs and their religious background. And the Son of God shows up in flesh. And they miss Him. Why? Because He didn't meet their expectations. The Jews, I'll remind you, are no better. Remember a few chapters back in Luke 4 when Jesus was at His own hometown in Nazareth and His hometown crowd tried to push Him off a cliff? Why? Same reason. It would be the same reason why they would eventually crucify him. Because their expectations of a Messiah didn't jive with God's expectations. So perhaps you or someone you know or love has hesitations about the Christian faith. Why do all those crazy things happen in the Old Testament? Why does Scripture speak so clearly and strongly against certain sins that don't seem all that bad to me? Why does Jesus insist on His exclusivity? He says He's the only way, the only door to approach God the Father eternally. Some, like these Samaritans, insisted on maintaining their own identity. I'm not giving up Mount Gerizim. I'm not giving up my beliefs, my culture, my lifestyle. Friends, that's not how it works. We can't insist on a Messiah of our own making. Don't make that mistake. 
because God was gracious to them here when they rejected Him. But on the final day, there will be fire from heaven for those who have rejected the Son. All right. Second application is, is this. Now, that, that's for the Samaritans. Right? I think that's one thing we can glean from the Samaritans. What can we glean from James and John and their violent request here at the end of Luke 9? Well, well, I think we can glean at least this. It is entirely possible to have a lot of correct insights about Jesus, about His Word, and yet totally screw up how to apply these truths in real time. You know that? After all, James and John did have a whole lot right here. They correctly understood and were correctly concerned for the honor of Jesus. They correctly understood that God Himself would vanquish His enemies and those who reject Him. These are biblical truths. But they we're trying to mete out God's wrath when it wasn't God's timing. The issue was they had a measure of truth, but they were trying to step into God's shoes. This, however, was still the day of salvation. Friends, it's still today the day of salvation. Even for those whose lives are currently hostile to Christ, even for Christ's enemies, even for those who outright oppose His work. Now think about that for a moment. Before we, as followers of Jesus, pull ourselves up by our self-righteous bootstraps and start wagging our fingers in everybody's face around us. We ought never to back down from truth. But keep in mind that this, friends, is still the day of salvation. That Jesus is very good at extending grace and mercy and salvation to his enemies. After all, such were some of you. He is mighty to save. Mighty to save. In fact, much later, we see in the book of Acts, not much later, rather, after Pentecost, Philip the evangelist preaches the gospel, guess where? Right here in Samaria. And guess what? Revival breaks out. You know what's wild? The apostles themselves hear that the gospel is catching on like wildfire in Samaria. And what do they do? Sadly, James is dead. He's been martyred for his faith. But they send Peter and John. Like this John. This John who said, send fire! On these people, they send him back to this place, and he's watching people get saved. He's watching people get filled with the Holy Spirit. Kind of makes you wonder, did, did John think back and say, oh, how foolish was I? God's plan was for salvation here. May we not jump in such an impetuous way, to the same conclusion. There are people 
whose behavior and whose patterns of life fly in the face of God's truth. His arm is not too short to save. The gospel still works, and we ought not to presume to call down fire, Lord. They're everywhere, and they need the gospel of the only one who can save. That's part of why we're here. Let's be gracious, and let's trust God with the results. All right, pick it back up in verse 57. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross, and and along the way we get this interesting exchange with three potential followers of Jesus, three would-be disciples, and they each get two verses. It's kind of neat and tidy. The first man in his account is in verses 57 and 58. We get the second man in verses 59 and 60, and we get the third man in verses 61 and 62. And I believe, Friendship Community Church, we can learn from this exchange a little bit more fully what it means to follow Jesus. Why do I think that? Well, I think that because the word follow occurs three times in this tiny little section of Scripture. We see the word follow in verse 57, in verse 59, in verse 61. It's the clear theme of this passage. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Are you interested in that? I am. I I need that. That's, that's, That's my whole life. Have you been saved by grace through faith in Jesus? That's your identity. That's by definition who you are. You're a follower of Jesus. So so if this is Jesus explaining how to follow Jesus, perhaps we ought to lean in here. Jesus is teaching us some lessons on discipleship. The first man we encounter here in verses 57 and 58 teaches us that Jesus, in a commitment to Jesus, takes priority over our personal comfort. Now, all of us would say, yeah, on some level, but, but we're not just talking about like luxury comfort. We're not just talking about the frills or the extras. This includes even the most basic necessities of life. Here again is Jesus beckoning his would-be followers to count the cost. You know, Jesus never sugarcoated the realities of being his disciple. And we do, by the way, a great disservice to people around us when we present the gospel in a way that appears that it's just, Jesus just exists to make your life better. That's no gospel at all. It's not the true gospel. From a temporal perspective, from an earthy perspective, from from our circumstantial perspective, we may actually find that sometimes following Jesus looks a whole lot like walking through hardships and trials and loss. There's one biblical commentator I cite often, Philip Ryken puts it. Ryken says, Jesus never presented the Christian life as a life of ease, but always of sacrifice. His message was, I love you. And I have a difficult plan for your life. Isn't that true? You heard that? Uh, Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. 
but define wonderful rightly. Jesus loves you, and at times his wonderful plan for your life is also a difficult plan for your life. Jesus is not so concerned about your comfort as he is your conformity to his image. So he says to this would-be disciple in verse 58, foxes have holes. And their interest rate on those holes is not that great, even in today's economy. Birds of the air have their nests. But me, the Son of Man, this is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He loves to call himself the Son of Man. But the Son of Man, echoing Daniel 7, getting people to think about the divinity of who he is. He's the one that the Ancient of Days is giving the kingdom to. The Son of Man, well, he's got nowhere to lay his head. Now, let's not overreact. Does this mean that Jesus is calling all of his disciples for the rest of time to be homeless? Of course not. God's common grace blessings are so very abundant to us, especially here in this great nation. But Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that you're not going to have any interest in following me if the comforts of life, even the most basic ones, are more important to you than where I'm leading. After all, isn't this the refrain of Scripture? Jesus is our reward. He's what you get. So David can exclaim in Psalm 63, 3, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Take it all away, God. If I've got you, I've got everything. Or, or in Psalm 16, 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Big house, brimming over 401k, No good apart from Jesus. Let me give you a real-time illustration of this. Uh, Just a few days ago, I had the privilege of visiting Richard Williams. Uh, He was in his bed, and uh, there had been a bit of a health scare, and so I had gone over to to read a a bit of Scripture and to pray with, with Richard. Many of you know Richard and Bernice. They've been faithful members here at Friendship Community Church for so, so very long. As I was holding Richard's hand and we were praying together, I was struck just by how frail this tremendous man of God was. No creature comforts left for Richard. No possessions to speak of. No clothing to boast of. No, no achievements there in that, in that frail little bed. He got nothing left. But Richard Williams has everything because he has the eternal security of knowing and trusting in Christ. Foxes got their holes. Birds of the air, well, they've got their nests. The Son of Man, there's no telling what you'll have if you follow Him. But if you follow Him, you've got everything. The second man in verse 59 and 60 
presents a different scenario of discipleship. If the first scenario dealt with the basic comforts of life, well, this second scenario deals with the commitments of other important things. Commitment, that's what we're talking about. Even commitment of beautiful things that God gives us, things like family. I mean, in this day, think about this. The burial of one's parents was one of the most sacred customs of that culture. No higher priority than honoring your father and mother in this way. What could possibly be of higher priority than this? Well, according to Jesus, the call to follow Him. Now, put your finger, look at verse 59. Put your finger on that word, first. That is a little word with a very big meaning. There's a sense in which this guy really does want to follow Jesus, but there's a first thing. There's a certain matter of priority that needs to be worked out before he can follow through on his commitment to Jesus. You see, any way you look at it, this guy is asking for a delay in following Christ. Lord, I'll follow wherever you lead, starting tomorrow. Right? We all understand this. Matters of urgency, matters of the highest priority, have a way of trumping all other social conventions. They take first precedence. Let me give you an example. This might be a clunky example, but my family and I just returned uh, from a vacation to Rhode Island. Lindsay and I lived there pre-kids. Our life was very different back then. And so we brought up to our, uh, our old church family and friends and, and uh, visited some beaches in Rhode Island with, our, uh, with Bruce and Carol, and we had a fantastic time up there in New England showing them uh, kind of where, where we uh, loved and lived in the past and, and our kids. Uh, by the way, do you know Rhode Island's called the Ocean State? Tiny, tiny little state, 400 miles of coastline. It's fantastic. And our kids spent a lot of time at the beach there and riding the waves in the ocean. So what if a tragedy would have struck and one of our children had been swept out to sea? Would I, watching my precious child get ripped out by a riptide into the ocean. Would I, in that moment, calculating the cost, understanding that if I go out to save this child, this might be my last time to see my wife, to see my other children. Would I, in this moment of crisis, say, time out! And run back to hug and kiss everybody before jumping in that water and praying for God's mercy? Of course, that's preposterous. In moments of crisis, in moments of highest priority, everything else falls into submission. So, follow me now. Do we think that choosing to follow Jesus is less important than that? Jesus is making the point quite clear here. All of the other moments in this man's life had collapsed into this moment. Perhaps you can relate. Someday I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart and soul. 
Someday there will be no reservations in my pursuit of Christ. But right now, man, I'm sure God understands. Right now, I've got some very pressing matters to attend to. Following Jesus is definitely something I'd like to do, but it's just not the top priority at this moment. There's another pressing matter that i got to work through. Now, some of you have been waiting for me to get to this. There's a debate here about this passage as to whether this man's father was ever even really dead yet or not. First, let me wait to bury my father, Jesus. We see in this culture, you didn't let grass grow between the time when a loved one passed and when they were buried. This was the ancient Near East. The Middle Eastern sun was brutal, still is. You buried someone like the day they died. Their line of reasoning goes, if, if his father had already died, that man wouldn't be there talking to Jesus. He'd be at the funeral or presiding over mourning with family. It's likely then that the, 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 the guy could be saying, well, Jesus, my father's death is imminent. Could you hang on while I see him through these final days, months, years? And then after this season is done, I, I promise I'll come follow you. Now, I am not going to hinge my biblical conclusion on that argument. Why? Well, because that's not what Jesus does here in this text. Was he dead? Was he not dead? I don't, I don't know. But Jesus doesn't seem to hinge on that point. Jesus seems at many other places in Scripture, to have no problem in cutting through people's ulterior motives and calling them out for the truth behind the truth. But that's not his response here. What's he do instead? Instead, Jesus calls this man, whether his dad is dead or alive, to something higher. By the way, you might make an argument that if his dad was still alive, he'd have an even greater commitment to be with him at that moment. What's Jesus telling him? Look at verse 60. This is, whew. Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead. What in the world does that mean? Let the dead bury their own dead. There's a lot of ways to, to see this, and we're not going to spend too much time, but, but this, this could possibly imply that the spiritually dead, in this instance could attend to the work of burying the physically dead, there is an urgent matter to attend to for this man, a matter of even higher urgency than his father's state, and that urgency is an appeal to follow the Son of the living God. The call was to drop everything, yes, even critically important family matters and pursue Jesus' calling, that was the thing of infinite importance. Now, would it be possible, even likely, that if he did that, the rest of his family would take supreme offense? That this guy left his family situation to follow after the higher calling of Christ? Absolutely. Some of you know exactly what that's like. It is very common 
among the people of God, particularly among the people of God in persecuted regions of the world today. For in order for somebody to follow Jesus, they've got to say goodbye to family and friends. They lose everything. Sort of like Martin Luther's old hymn puts it, let goods and kindred go. I know, don't mishear me, don't mishear Jesus. He's not saying you don't need to care about your family. You can punt on all the other things the Bible says about honoring your father and mother because everything's all about this. No, 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 no. But Jesus knew what was in this man's heart. And Jesus was calling him at this point in time to follow. There is something, friends, more important than even family. There is something more important than material possessions or temporal comforts. And if this sounds harsh to you, then perhaps, I'm going to say this with grace, but I'm not going to flinch. If this sounds harsh to you, perhaps it's because we don't fully understand or we haven't fully worked out the absolute priority of what it means to follow Jesus. Here's the bottom line. If He's your Lord, then He is your highest and unswerving allegiance. Your family is very important to the Lord, but not more important than your God. Your job is very important, but it's not more important than how you're following your Savior. There's a lot of things that we can stake our personal identity in. And boy, oh boy, can many of us raise our hands and say, guilty. The amount of heart and mind space that other even beautiful, noble ventures consume. And Jesus just kind of gets our leftovers. I really do want to follow you, Jesus, but it's busy right now. We know what this feels like, don't we? Jesus had just finished telling us a few verses back. Look at verses 23 and 24, same chapter. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Dear friends, that's what it means to follow Christ. He's not some moralistic, therapeutic teacher. He's Lord. He's Master. He calls the shots and he demands that He come first. He demands primacy of place in your life and mine. In any event, don't miss this little detail. Jesus just happens to be on the move, remember? He set His face, where? To Jerusalem. There's no guarantee He'll be coming back this way, is there? Jesus isn't waiting around for the stars to align in our own personal lives and schedules in order for us to follow Him fully. This guy, listen now, does not have the liberty to decide when and when not to follow Jesus. Jesus is headed to the cross. He set His face like a flint to the cross to go to Jerusalem. And, and, and this guy, I don't know, may or may not get a second opportunity. I'll be quick, but my life was forever changed when I 
was heading back to college as a young man. Went to school in upstate New York, and uh, I hopped in the car early, early one morning, uh, and was headed back for, for a new semester, lots of hopes and dreams in my heart, and it was, it was probably, I don't know, 6.37 in the morning, and I'm, I'm, I'm driving up a hill not far from my house, and as I was driving up that road, almost nobody else awake, it was like a Sunday morning or something, and, and I see uh, cresting over the hill another vehicle coming at me. Ain't no thing. That's just driving, right? Until I see that vehicle drift into my lane and stay. And I'm going probably too fast. But I don't know how, he's, how fast he's going. I've got seconds to make a decision. Are we playing chicken? Do I, what do I do? Do I jerk the, the wheel off this side of the road? There's a steep ravine. That could be death. Do I, do I jerk the wheel on the other side of the road? Maybe he fell asleep. What, what if he wakes up and he tries to... I mean, and all this is happening in an instant. He's coming right at me. And I was just frozen, waiting to make a decision. And at just the last minute, he must have woke up. I, I don't know. The car in front of me jerked. He spun around a 360. The back of his vehicle almost clipped the front of my vehicle, and he skidded off to the side of the road, smashed into a telephone pole. I pulled off to the side of the road, not a scratch, shaking like a leaf. This was like pre-cell phone days. I didn't have a phone on me. We're in the country. I run over to the other car. It's like I'm looking at myself. There's a young man in that vehicle, like 19 years old. Broken neck. I'll spare you the details. He didn't make it. Why am I telling you this? Well, because my dad, my, my father was coaching me through watching another young man die right in front of me. He said, Zeb, the sad truth is, sometimes you don't get a second chance. Why did he die? Why am I here? Sometimes tomorrow's not guaranteed. Don't gamble with your eternity. This is not spiritual manipulation. This is truth. This is not a, a threat. This is not trying to scare you into heaven or into greater discipleship, greater submission to Jesus with the words of Jesus ringing in your ear. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, this is what he does. Don't wait. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. David Gooding, I'll give you this one more and then we'll, we'll whip through the last one. David Gooding once put it this way. This, these are sober words. These are true words, I believe. David Gooding writes, A man who considers that he has a prior duty to fulfill before he is free to become a follower of Christ has no concept of who Christ is.
Friends, there is nothing more important than this. All right, last man. 61 and 62, verses 61 and 62. The last guy says, Lord, I'll follow you, Lord, but first, there's that little word again, first, let me say farewell to those at home. Verse 61. Now, that seems like a pretty reasonable request to me, like a common courtesy. At least let me go and say goodbye. And after all, there does seem to be some biblical precedent for this sort of thing. If you've read the Old Testament, you may remember that Elijah once, Elijah once said to Elisha in 1 Kings 19, as he's plowing in the field, interesting, as he's plowing in the field, Elisha says, let me first go say goodbye to my family. And Elijah grants him that request. What's Elisha do? Well, he goes home. He burns his plowing equipment. He slaughters his oxen. He holds a feast, and he never looks back. But this is a different matter entirely. This guy asks to go say goodbye. But the call, the urgency here is of something made of something very different. Jesus' call here is more radical. It's, it's higher than even that of the great prophet. And isn't it interesting that Jesus uses a plow illustration in his answer? Now, this is not to say, certainly, that Elisha was looking back when he was going uh, to, to say goodbye to his parents, or that was wrong for him to do. Jesus is speaking to this guy here, this third guy. What's the point of this plow metaphor? Where if you've ever, if you've ever plowed before, especially if you've been on one of those old school plows, you know that if you're doing this on the tractor, or probably would have been this, holding on to the plow, pushing it yourself, or, or it being carted by a pair of oxen, and if you're plowing forward, trying to cut a straight furrow, and you start doing this, what happens? Man, you've got a zigzaggy feel, don't you? You're going to make a mess. Jesus says, the one who grabs the gospel plow and looks back, He's not worthy of me. There is a kind of submission to Jesus where we get going, we get plowing, and, and, and we're remembering that which we gave up, and we just want to look back. We just want to look back. Kind of want to make you recall that story of Lot and his wife fleeing from Sodom. She became a pillar of salt. So, where does all this leave us? What happens as a result of Jesus' call to, to these three men? Well, it's curious, I think, that Luke never tells us, does he? He never tells us the decision that these men made. Did the first guy choose to lay aside the comforts of home and, and follow Jesus, even to embrace homelessness if necessary for the sake of the gospel? What did he choose? Did the second guy let the dead bury their own dead to follow Jesus? Did the third guy look back from the gospel plow? Or did he resolve, no looking back, I'm following Christ? Christ. 
We don't know, do we? And I think that's kind of the point. Because whatever you or I may choose to do or not to do, there is one who would. There is one who would choose to follow the word of God, the call of God perfectly. There is one here who would lay aside the glories of his heavenly dwelling and condescend down to this cursed and miserable place. There is one who would give it all up, enduring the cross and its shame. There would be only one who would fix his eyes perfectly on the prize ahead of him. Who would set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross, despite the pain, despite the shame. Nothing could deter him. That's the point. What did they do? I don't know. But I've looked back. Have you? He didn't. He kept his eyes on the cross. There is no room for pride following Jesus. He is the only one who has ever said, I did not look back. And because Jesus didn't look back from his fixed gaze to Jerusalem, because Jesus never looked back, we can approach him with boldness and confidence. We who look back and back and back We who follow Him with lackluster affections. We can now pray to the King who made it possible. Give me your mind, Christ. Help me fix my eyes on your glory so I wouldn't look back. So that the things of this world wouldn't ensnare my heart. Tune my ears, Christ, to your voice so I wouldn't be lured by the song of another. Fill me with your spirit so that I would run the course you've laid out for me with joy. These things we can pray, Friendship Community Church, because Jesus kept his hands on the plow and his eyes fixed perfectly. So we can Pray as we're about to sing in just a second. Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. My debt is paid and the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. All of our joy, all of our hope, all of our faith is in this Jesus. Father, help. Fix our eyes on our King. Grow us in His grace. Give us hearts that are united, undivided to fear His name. Help us. Nestled in Christ, not look back. We love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.